All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Alon Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, join us to discuss China Disrupts the Middle East. Mr. Berman will speak for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type about your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Lon. Oh, thanks very much, Stacey. Um, I'm, uh, let me start by saying thank you to the Middle East Forum for having me uh, and thank all, thanks to all of you for joining. Um, I wish we could do this in person, but th this will have to do for now. Um, let me uh, spend a few minutes walking through uh, sort of what's changed uh, in terms of Chinese foreign policy towards the Middle East, because I, I think we're witnessing a uh, very significant shift in Chinese uh, foreign policy and strategic behavior, and it has all sorts of implications for the United States and for countries in the Middle East itself. So I, I think we have to sort of to understand where we were to understand where we're going. Historically, uh, China has had only limited interests in the Middle East, uh, right? And you could essentially boil them down to two things. Uh, on the one hand, China was very interested and has historically been very interested in uh, Middle Eastern oil. Uh, China is heavily dependent on oil imports uh, to sort of keep its economy humming. Uh, over the last decade or so, China has routinely garnered close to uh, eight, nine, even 10% uh, GDP growth uh, on a sort of per year basis. Um, and uh, very much of that is uh, driven by, uh, by energy. Uh, China doesn't produce enough energy at home. So what you've seen in tandem with this economic expansion from China has been a quest uh, further and further afield for reliable sources of energy. And China has engaged with uh, countries in the Middle East uh, very substantially on that front. The other uh, sort of area of Chinese historic interest has been uh, arms. Uh, the mid, uh, China ranks today as uh, one of the world's top five uh, arms exporters. I think it exports something like 6% of uh, arms globally, um, accounts for 6% of global arms sales. Uh, the Middle East is a very, very big part uh, of that entire package for China. Um, and historically, uh, China has benefited from uh, military sales uh, to the region, in particular to countries like Iran, which have relied heavily on Chinese weaponry. But uh, more recently, what we've seen is a pretty significant strategic shift that's taken place in Chinese foreign policy. Um, and it's attributable to uh, essentially to two things. Uh, the first is that there really has been a fundamental change in Chinese strategic culture and also the way China thinks about the region. Historically, uh, China in foreign affairs in general, but foreign affairs towards the Middle East in particular, has uh, relied on uh, its uh, former leader, Deng Xiaoping's old axiom that uh, it needs to keep a low profile. Uh, it needs to sort of to not cause waves in international affairs. Um, that, uh, over the last seven years or so, uh, has changed very dramatically. And, and I say seven years because it was in 2013 that uh, the current Iranian, uh, Iranian, excuse me, uh, current Chinese president uh, Xi Jinping uh, took office, and he has proceeded to reorient Chinese foreign policy in a more 
adventurist uh, in a more confrontational direction. And we're seeing that play out now, uh, not just uh, in what China is doing in the Middle East, but also uh, in terms of uh, the sort of the unfolding great power competition between China and the United States. Um, the other uh, the other main driver of greater Chinese interest in the Middle East has to do with the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Uh, the same year uh, as Xi Jinping uh, took power, he laid out a sweeping vision of uh, essentially a forward uh, forward looking thoroughgoing Chinese engagement policy with the world, which has come to be known as the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not one belt, one road. It's many belts, many roads. It's uh, essentially a full court press by China, diplomatically, politically, economically, to expand its influence. And one of the principal vehicles that China has used in order to do that, in order to engage with countries in Central Asia, countries in Europe, Middle East, North Africa, even Latin America, has been uh, infrastructure projects, uh, greater business development, and uh, loans that are very favorable, at least in the near term, to uh, governments that are often seeking foreign assistance. Um, so this has resulted in uh, a surge of interest uh, on the part of China in the Middle East over the last, um, over the last uh, five years or so. And you see that, uh, I think, play out in what I would argue is uh, three, uh, three of the most prominent uh, avenues, uh, right? The first, is, the first has to do with Chinese investment in Israel. Um, China has, uh, you know, Israel has been uh, for, uh, well, ever since uh, 2009 when uh, the book Startup Nation came out, which all of us have read, um, Israel has really thrown open its doors to international investment um, and sort of, you know, trafficked on the idea that it is a global hub for innovation, you know, for very good reason. Uh, Israel's high-tech sector is dynamic, it's robust, it's booming, um, and countries are taking notice. And China is one of the ones that uh, is sort of first, uh, first among equals in terms of trying to take advantage of this. So you've seen a surge of uh, Chinese investment in Israel over the last uh, five years or so. Um, China is, uh, based upon the pace of its investments, is now positioned to uh, become the single largest nation state investor uh, in, in the Jewish state uh, in the next several years, eclipsing the United States. Um, and Chinese investments have uh, focused very, very heavily on that main hub of innovation, on Israel's high tech sector, on uh, Israeli telecom, on Israeli software, uh, and this is, I think, enormously significant because uh, that sector is not hermetically sealed off uh, from uh, sort of what, what else is going on in the country in national security terms. And so one of the really interesting uh, side effects of China's greater profile in Israel has been that it's actually caused tensions between Jerusalem and Washington where the Trump administration, which is uh, overall very favorable and, and sort of very uh, pro-Israeli, has expressed growing concern that uh, this growing Chinese footprint in Israel, uh, a growing Chinese investment in Israel, could have the effect of adversely uh, impacting the special relationship and strategic cooperation between the two countries. Uh, because, precisely because the high-tech sector is such an engine for growth, it's also an engine for a lot of the joint defense industrial projects, 
um, that, uh, join, that uh, cumulatively animate the relationship. So this is something to watch. Um, the uh, second uh, sort of major prong is that I think you're seeing very inexorably the uh, exportation of uh, China's brand of digital authoritarianism uh, into the Middle East. Um, it, it bears noting uh, in a historical context that China has been doing this for a while. Uh, Chinese uh, telecom firm ZTE was uh, one of the main partners for the Iranian regime in clamping down on the Green Movement protests uh, that broke out in the summer of 2009. Um, and China, so from those early beginnings, China has really expanded its uh, telecom presence uh, in places like Lebanon and Egypt and Iran itself, all over uh, North Africa. Um, but uh, along attendant with that commercial activity, there is uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that China is also slowly but surely exporting it, uh, its system of social control uh, by providing a, a authoritarian regimes with the means to more effectively monitor and surveil and uh, if necessary, repress their own domestic populations. And uh, it bears noting that uh, China has been very successful at home in building this sort of this network of social control through things like the Great Firewall of China, through things like a social credit system that uh, incentivize, incentivizes conformity um, with uh, Chinese government policies. And that model is slowly but surely making its way down the Belt and Road uh, towards the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and the third prong, uh, and uh, this is sort of something that's beginning to play out, I think, very significantly now, is uh, that China has managed through its investments to effectively buy the silence of the Muslim world as it pertains to the way China treats its own Muslims. Uh, China has, for the last four years or so, engaged in a wide-ranging campaign of repression, against uh, its own Muslim minority known as the Uyghurs. Uh, they live out in a semi-autonomous province known as Xinjiang uh, in Western China. Um, and uh, more and more, uh, I mean, if you look at a map geographically, Xinjiang is strategically uh, important because it lies along the road, uh, the land-based corridor through which China envisions trade flowing from China to Central Asia and the Middle East and uh, the other way as well. So Xinjiang uh, is very important to Chinese plans in terms of needing to be pacified. Um, and so what, what that has uh, resulted in over the last four years has been a campaign of uh, repression against the Uyghurs, which has uh, resulted in more than a million Uyghurs uh, now in re-education camps, uh, anecdotes about uh, forced sterilizations of Uyghur women, uh, anecdotes about uh, what is effectively slave labor uh, in which Uyghurs are conscripted to produce cheap Chinese goods for export um, and all sorts of other, uh, frankly, horrendous practices. Um, this is something that one would think would be of tremendous concern to uh, co-religionists of the Uyghurs in the Muslim world. And yet the silence has been deafening. And that silence has a great deal to do with the fact that China has managed to uh, essentially uh, shape the conversation over the Uyghurs that's taking place uh, in places like Riyadh or Dubai uh, because of its investment, because of its level of economic activity. Um, and so when Muslim leaders do, um, do express uh, sentiments about the Uyghurs, it tends to be in support of the Chinese position rather than in opposition to it. 
Um, so I, I think that in a nutshell sort of shows you where we are currently. But I think we need to also talk a little bit about where we're going because um, increasingly Beijing uh, is thinking much bigger about the Middle East, right? If, if before its strategic interests were very limited, uh, today they're much broader. Tomorrow they have a lot to do with trying to supplant the United States as this dominant strategic power in the Middle East. And so that's the context I think uh, that's useful to, to, to have when you think about the new $400 billion quarter century uh, strategic accord that um, China has just hammered out with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, Iran comes to the table because it needs an external sponsor because uh, quite frankly, uh, US maximum pressure policy is working. The Iranian economy is uh, much uh, weaker and uh, at risk of being destabilized. And so Iran is increasingly looking to other countries uh, for support and China is, is, is there. But it's a mistake, I think, to think about uh, what China is doing solely in the context of Iran, because China at the same time is making overtures to other Muslim states in the Middle East as well. So uh, over the last four years, uh, the Chinese have uh, hammered out uh, upwards of $120 billion in trade deals uh, with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, right? And in the process, they've made themselves a key stakeholder in um, the Saudi Reform and Modernization Plan, which is known colloquially as Vision 2030. Um, so you take the Iran component, you take the Saudi component, and you take the growing investment in Israel, and what you see is a uh, sort of a facet of great power competition um, that is taking place in the Middle East that, frankly, we haven't accounted for yet. Uh, Beijing, it's increasingly clear, has big plans for the region. Um, and our great power competition with them currently encompasses a lot of things. But uh, unless we begin to address, significantly address what China is doing in the Middle East, we run the risk of being outmaneuvered in there uh, uh, by the Chinese. So I'll stop there. All right, thank you so much. That was, that was quite a bit of information in a short period of time, so thank you. Um, we're getting quite a few questions in regarding the Port of Haifa and Chinese interest in that. Can you discuss that a little further? Sure, so the Port of Haifa is, I, I think, um, uh, a good, uh, although not a perfectly representative uh, example, but a good example of the inherent problems that, come, uh, that have to do with uh, Chinese investment in Israel. So uh, the contours of uh, what's happening in Haifa are as follows. Uh, in 2015, the Israeli Interior Ministry contact, uh, contracted with a group called the Shanghai Ports Group, um, which uh, is ostensibly a private entity. But because China a few years ago passed a national security law that mandates that all companies that are na Chinese national in origin uh, refer and pay deference to the state on matters of national security, it's impossible to say that Shanghai Ports Group is really totally an independent company. Um, but under the deal that was hammered out in 2015, uh, Shanghai Ports Group uh, was contracted to do a build out and modernization of the Haifa port. Um, and to uh, when that build out is done, which, which should be next year, uh, if the current schedule holds, uh, Shanghai Ports Group will take over day-to-day -day operations uh, in the port. Um, the reason that's a problem is because the Haifa port is not just a commercial hub. It is a commercial hub, but it's also the staging ground 
for military exercises between the Israeli Navy and the US Navy. Um, there's a lot of strategic components relevant to the bilateral relationship between the US and Israel that take place in and around Haifa, which is why you've seen uh, US military officials more and more say, you know, if the current status quo holds, we're gonna need to rethink, for example, port visits to Haifa. Not because we don't like Israel, but because we increasingly feel and we worry that the integrity of our military cooperation is gonna be compromised by the Chinese presence there. Understood, thank you. It seems that Trump has made it clear that Israel should limit its trade with China. Should Israel follow Trump's demand, even if it goes against Israel's interests? And would Biden have the same concern about trade with China? So uh, that, that's a lot. Um, but uh, let, let me see how I can sort of answer this. Um, I, I, look, I, I think the Israeli interest in engaging with China is very natural. Um, Israel sees China as a rising power, uh, as a global economic power. Israel very naturally wants to have ties with China just the same way that it cultivated ties with the United States, right? This is a very natural condition. But I think there is a fundamental disconnect um, between uh, sort of the way Israel is thinking about China um, and uh, sort of the great power competition that's unfolding. A great anecdote I can tell you is that uh, the last trip I took before we all got locked down and were forced to communicate on Zoom, uh, I spent a week in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, uh, very interesting stuff, uh, sort of looking at, you know, uh, modernization and reform and, and uh, sort of their state response to uh, sort of uh, foreign fighter returnees and things like that, right? That's outside the scope of what we're talking about. But in a lot of those conversations, China came up. And the official line in Riyadh uh, at that point was very clearly, look, I, we get it. Uh, America has a problem with China, but it's America's problem. We're sort of at the, on the sides uh, of this um, relationship. We, we don't really want to have anything to do with it. We want to trade with both. And so I think there's a little bit of that same sort of thinking that happens in Israel now, which is that Israel has a special relationship with the United States, which is second to none. Israel has an increasingly robust relationship with China and never shall the two meet. But the reality is because of the strategic relationship between Israel and the United States, because uh, great power competition between uh, China and the United States is increasingly all encompassing or encompasses a large number of things. It becomes increasingly hard for Israel to walk between the raindrops, to communicate with the United States and interact with the United States and keep the same robustness um, with China. Um, to the second half of, or to the second question, uh, about whether or not this is going to change. Um, I actually think that uh, there are policies where there's, uh, if there is a first Biden term, um, there are, is going to be a lot of difference. You know, uh, policy uh, approaches towards Iran is a great example where uh, the vice president has made clear that he wants to walk back maximum pressure. He wants to re-engage with Iran. On China though, um, a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of the campaign uh, a lot of what uh, the candidate himself has said about, for example, uh, Chinese atrocities in Western, uh, Western China against the Uyghurs suggests that there is, that this sort of more confrontational attitude towards China is going to continue no matter whether we're talking about a second Trump term or a first Biden term. Um, and that I think is important because a more confrontational U.S. policy Right? not a more confrontational Republican or Democrat policy, but a more confrontational U.S. policy is going to have all sorts of implications for countries like Israel, countries like Saudi Arabia, that are trying 
to sort of, for the moment, to split the difference, to try to maintain relations with both sides. Perfectly. Then to the next question. How should the U.S. reshape its strategy towards Iran, given that China is a friend of Iran, which makes Iran less vulnerable to economic sanctions? Sure. Well, so the question is a little bit far afield. Let me see if I can uh, sort of uh, navigate it, um, because uh, I'm sure all of the viewers know the, uh, the action right now on Iran sits at the United Nations Security Council, because last month, the uh, Trump administration um, uh, issued or uh, proposed a resolution to extend the arms embargo uh, against Iran, which was part of UN Security Council Resolution 2231, which accompanied the JCPOA. Um, the arms embargo uh, expires in mid-October. Um, and so the idea was to at least keep the status quo for now and extend the arms embargo into the future. Um, that measure, though, got a lot of resistance. Uh, in particular, it got a lot of resistance from countries like Russia and China. Not coincidentally, those are the same countries that are likely to be the largest military suppliers of an Iran that is unfettered from the arms embargo and is rearming. And by the way, um, if you remember, if you recall a dozen years or so ago, um, when uh, before there was really sort of any concerted international movement to curb Iran's nuclear program, the idea that Iran was building uh, a nuclear capability, that Iran was essentially unconstrained in doing so, essentially touched off a proliferation cascade in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I think at the, at the sort of at the height of this trend back in uh, 2008, um, we were looking at something like 13 different countries in the Middle East and North Africa that were in various stages of nuclear development. Some of them like Tunisia and Morocco, they weren't really so concerned about Iran. They were concerned about things like uh, Muammar Gaddafi's stranglehold on oil in Libya, for example, things like that, right? But a lot of them, like the UAE, like Bahrain, like Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, most of their concerns, most of their movement towards a nuclear capability was driven by concerns over a rising and increasingly uh, nearly nuclear Iran. Um, the reason that's significant today is because we're on the cusp of that trend happening again. Because uh, if Iran is unconstrained by uh, meaningful international sanctions, if Iran has the ability to uh, sort of move, forge ahead with its military uh, modernization plan, rearm itself, you're very likely going to see the same sort of uh, proliferation cascade happen in the Middle East as well, right? Not just, not in terms of uh, nuclear weapons, but in terms of skittish neighbors of Iran that increasingly look to rearm themselves as a counterweight to an Iran that is acquiring more and more sophisticated conventional weaponry, right? And by the way, frankly, I, I think that's exactly what Moscow and Beijing are counting on, right? By being intransigent at the United Nations, um, they are guaranteeing that the arms embargo expires, uh, and they're guaranteeing that nervous regional neighbors of Iran, not just Iran, um, will look to them to sell them the weaponry to essentially maintain the regional balance. So it's shrewd business for sure. It's a very cynical ploy, um, but it has the potential to generate a lot of instability in the Middle East in the near future. Thank you for that answer. Uh, what is the Israeli government's attitude towards Chinese digital authoritarianism? Is there pushback or is there any receptiveness towards implementing aspects of it? So I, I, in terms of digital authoritarianism, there isn't a lot of uh, evidence that I've seen that the Israelis are really sort of embracing 
uh, the sort of um, the Chinese model or, or uh, importing, you know, uh, Chinese suppression technology, things like that. Uh, that's not sort of, that's not where the bread and butter is, frankly, uh, for the Israeli government. What, what uh, worries me about Israel's engagement with China is something else, which is that uh, Israel does not currently have sufficient safeguards uh, for monitoring Chinese investment into the country, right? One of the big uh, debates that's happened quietly between the US government and the Israeli government over the last two years has been the fact that Israel needs to build institutions that can keep track of what China's investing in. Um, so here in the United States, we have an intergovernmental body called, uh, interagency body called uh, the CFIUS, the Committee, to Protect, uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And that's a body that gives recommendations uh, to Congress and to the executive branch about whether or not uh, a sort of a large scale investment by a foreign uh, country in things like, for example, uh, strategic minerals uh, should be allowed to go forward or if it adversely affects national security. Um, Israel doesn't have anything like that. And they, uh, they only recently set up a mechanism in response to US concerns. So they did that um, in late October, early November of last year. But that uh, CIFIAT, right, Committee on Foreign Investment in Israel, um, actually doesn't even encompass the Israeli high tech sector. There's a $6 billion carve out for Israeli high tech because Israeli high tech is nimble and it's agile and it wants to attract as much capital as possible. So I would make the case that US concerns over unregulated Chinese investment in Israel is really the sort of the irritant in the relationship currently. And the Israelis have taken some steps, but they haven't taken enough. Well, thank you. I guess the last question of the day is where can we find some more information on this and specifically some more of your work? Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I write about this a lot. I've, I've had the chance to write about this for Middle East Quarterly um, at, the, uh, at the risk of flogging your work and mine. Um, the uh, fall 2019 issue um, of Middle East Quarterly, I sort of, I lay out the case for sort of, you know, the pernicious effects of Chinese policy in the Middle East. Um, I've continued sort of working and writing on that subject. Uh, if people want to read it, they can visit um, the, the American Foreign Policy Council where I work. Uh, it's www.afpc.org. All right, thank you so much. And the, the Middle East Quarterly article you were speaking of, is also, there's a link in the webinar invitation for today as well, if our viewers would like to see that. So we have come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Berman, for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And for our viewers, please note we will not be having a webinar on Monday for Labor Day. And our weekly webinar offering email will be sent out within the next few days. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.